You may be seated. And please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 8. You'll be glad to know that the entirety of the chapter actually is on the insert in your bulletin with a short outline on the bottom. A tiny place for you to take notes, but if you're furiously writing down notes, good on you. But if you run out of steam and you need to email me during the week and say, Nathan, what did you say? I'm happy to do that. So we'll chill. I got a lot of info to bring today. So my email is free. So it's been amazing. Usually during this time, before I read the passage, I'm giving you a scripture intro. But what I want to give you is a bit of a I think church life intro, I think the context of this passage in our church's life, combined together with Tony's series on Habakkuk and reaching chapter 4 and looking at the joy that we can have in the midst of suffering is a theme that he's bringing us through. And as, as the pastor who does most of the counseling at our church and seeing your faces and the faces of people from the other service just coming in with some of the suffering and the difficulties, the hardship, and the puzzling situations in life, God's bringing us through the book of Ecclesiastes for such a time as this. And I think that He faithfully keeps us in His Word and His Word of truth ever before us so that we can soak in it. Because very few of us, let me just say it, nobody gets it first time they hear it, right? We need a steady diet of the truth in order to chip away at our hard hearts, in order to soften us, in order for us to receive the implanted truth of the Word of God. So, with that as the uh, church life context for Ecclesiastes 8, follow along as I read. This is God's inerrant, inspired, and holy Word. Who is like the wise? Who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's troubles lies heavy on him. For he does not know what it is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain his spirit or power over the day of death. There's no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun." when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well for those who fear God, because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There's a vanity that takes place on earth, and there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people 
to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on the earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Let's pray together. Lord, those words echo in our minds how we seek to find out what your work is, and we struggle. We struggle with the reality that we won't figure it all out, that we cannot find it out. And yet, Lord, we are thankful that what we need to know, you have given us. You've given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Your word is sufficient for living life in ways that will honor you. And so, Lord, we're grateful for what you have revealed. And I pray that we would devote ourselves to it. But for those things that are just puzzling, that are mysteries to us, that we wrestle with, that we grieve over, that we suffer under, Lord, give us wisdom so that our face might shine. Give us an understanding that can only come from your revelation of yourself in your word so that we may be faithful servants doing our duty as you've called us to do, but as grateful sons living out of the abundance of joy and grace that you've given to us. And so, Lord, we need your eyes to see the word that is before us and ears to hear so that we can understand what is written before it. Some things are very puzzling and difficult to even interpret and understand, but, Lord, your Spirit reveals truth to us. Your same Spirit gives us the power to do what we see is true. And so we ask for your enabling grace as well. We need you all around, Lord, so please minister to us through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I titled this sermon, Facing Life's Enigmas. I purposely didn't title it, Solving Life's Enigmas. Um, I don't think that we're going to find solutions to all of the problems in life, and part of the theme of Ecclesiastes is you're going to have to be good with that. And the fact is that life under the sun is where we're called to live. And the preacher gives all of his instruction and examples for the rest of the common humanity that has to live life under the sun. Vanity, chasing after the wind, grasping after something that's empty, and it seems like it has no meaning. But God gives us these over-the-sun perspectives from time to time where we get these little beams, shafts of light that come into this under-the-sun existence and help to reveal to us what His purpose is, what His plan is, what our goal in life ought to be. And so that's what we're attempting today. But I chose the word enigma because I like that word, enigma. Oxford Dictionary definition is a person or thing that is mysterious, puzzling, or difficult to understand. I like that it's a person or thing. We all have a person that's an enigma in our lives, right? 
Just like you scratch your head, what were they thinking? What are they doing? What makes them tick? Now, other people say that about you, so don't go too far in your thinking about just other people. But it's also things, just difficult to understand. Some synonyms for enigma are mystery, puzzle, riddle, conundrum, paradox, and problem. Does that give you a good idea what this is about? Historically, we can read about the Enigma machine. It was fascinating this week as I was looking into the Enigma machine. It's a cipher device, a security device, an encryption device that was used all the way back in World War, the end of World War I and the beginning of World War II. And it was used to protect the information that was being sent across telegraphs and radios. It was a bunch of gibberish that would go out, but if you had the right code, you could interpret it. You could get the, the message. I saw a, uh, and it was used extensively by Nazi Germany during World War II. So the Allies were intent on trying to crack the code. How do we understand what this gibberish going off across the, the airwaves is all about? So we can understand what the troop movements are and the orders are from the front to the front. So I saw a little video from a, a BBC presentation where they opened up this box and it had a keyboard on there. And it looked like an old-fashioned keyboard, but it had a series of lights with letters underneath them. And so you'd press one key, Q, and up would pop out, and then the light for S would light up. You press Q again, and you think S is going to light up, but it doesn't. It's like Y. And then you press Q again, and then B pops up. It didn't seem to have any rhyme or reason. Like, why, why does it do that? Then he pulls off the front, and you can see these, looks like old telephone wire plugins that are all in the front here. And then up on the top were these rotating disks that had numbers on them with gears that would click, click, click every time you hit the key. And then after a certain number of clicks, it would turn the next one. And it was fascinating because he described that the electric current goes through and up through all of these puzzles in order to create what seems to be a random letter up on the top. Those would be the letters that would go out over the airwaves, so you hear that and you're like, that doesn't make any sense. Until dedicated mathematicians and minds put their thoughts towards how are we going to solve this puzzle, how are we going to figure out this code. And it really, when the code was cracked, when they beat the Enigma machine, the tide of the war changed. It had a huge influence on understanding troop movements, other secret messages that now could be deciphered. They gave them a giant advantage to the allies. Now, Ecclesiastes 8, I want you to think of it as an enigma that the preacher attempts to solve three enigmas that we are facing up to 2021. The first is the enigma of human government, the enigma of prosperity of the wicked, and finally, the enigma of the suffering of the righteous. So the preacher helps us to see that these enigmas in life only find their solutions when they're viewed from God's over-the-sun perspective. And I'd like to say at the outset, we're going to solve perfectly all these enigmas. I wish we would come to the same settled conclusions of what the accurate understanding of them are. But 
God is going to give us some guardrails, I think, to help constrain where our mind goes with these mysteries. He's not going to solve all of them for us. But we'll find help in His Word, His revealed Word, where we can go. Let's start with the enigma of human government. And I said, Lord, this week as I'm watching clips of the Johnson County Board of Commissioners and all the debate that's going on, I said, Lord, why do I have to preach on Ecclesiastes 8 this week? Why couldn't Tony handle something like this? But here we go. Let's solve the enigma of human government. Verse 2 says, I say, and this is the preacher speaking, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Pretty straightforward. I wish there was more wiggle room in that, but here we go. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Don't take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. The word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and just the way. And note verse 9. All this I observed while applying my heart to what's done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Government is about power, and often that power hurts people. That's a reality in this fallen world with sin all around us and sin in the systems. It just makes for the struggle to continue on. But we're given directions for how we are to live even under a power that will sometimes hurt people. The Word of God gives us some instruction, some over-the-sun perspective comes when there's more revelation throughout the New Testament. Uh, uh, we're going to look at Romans 13, uh, 1 Peter 2, Titus 3, but also there's examples of individuals throughout history in the Old Testament. We think of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the apostles, and, and we'll get guidance from them. But listen, listen to what Romans 13 tells us. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Boy, I wish there was more wiggle room still, but verse 3 says, rulers are not a terror for good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval." for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. But because, for because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to his very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to him honor is owed. A lot is expected of us with regard to human government. First Peter 2 says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. It, it works this way in submission on many levels, but our subjection is not just for the sake of that authority, but it's for the Lord's sake, as we obey as unto the Lord. It goes on to say, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, 
not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but to the unjust as well. And Titus 3 says, be submissive to rulers and authorities, be obedient to be ready for every good work. Now, we should have some questions about how we ought to relate to human government, and I think those verses, we can draw a whole lot from there. The first question I want to ask is, why should we obey human government? I think two reasons. One, God gives them authority. It's instituted by God. He sends human authority to punish evil and to praise good. Now, do they use that power to hurt others at times? Yes. But that's the reason that we should, the first reason we should obey human government. It's instituted by God. He gives that authority. It's a delegated authority from God in His will. Secondly, obedience is not contingent on the government being consistent, correct in their thinking or reasoning, or morally upright in their character. Remember, Peter says, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. That requires us to be subject to these authorities even when they do things we don't agree with. But how should we obey human government? I think there's three ways that we should consider in our attitude and our approach to obeying human government. We see here that we should respect. We should do so with respect. It's respect for the office and the authority that God in His wise providence has given. The way that He has framed human government to do such good we should do so, we should respect it even when we disagree with it. We should obey with prayer. Paul told Timothy, petitions, prayers, and intercessions and thanksgiving should be made for all people, for kings and all those who are in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Uh, just about every week in our pastoral prayer, our elders are praying for our governing authorities, that God would give them wisdom, that God would keep them from, from sin and error. We ought to prayer, prayerfully obey, respectfully obey, and to also obey with humility. As individuals, we can have passionate involvement in government with all lawful means for making our point of view known. You can run for office, you can con contact your officials, you can sign petitions, you can attend peaceful rallies, you can even bring legal suits when appropriate. But it has to be done with humility and gentleness and respect. I wanted to skip to this question at the first. Well, when shouldn't we obey human government? I want to know what the loophole is. I want to know when, when do I have the right to not obey human authority, human government? Well, first we see that we, when we are expressly commanded to do something that God forbids, expressly commanded to do something that God forbids. Daniel 3.16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you remember they were told that they had to bow down before this idol, this statue that King Nebuchadnezzar built up, that they were to worship this idol. Well, that's wrong on so many accounts of God's declared will. Have no other gods before me. Don't make any idols. So, worshiping another god, a statue, was not allowed. 
They answered to King Nebuchadnezzar, We do not need to answer your last question. If God, whom we honor, can save us from the blazing furnace and from your power, He will, Your Majesty. But if He doesn't, you should know that we'll never honor your gods or worship the gold statue that you set up. We can't. If God has explicitly forbidden it, we must not do it. When we're forced to stop doing something that God has expressly required of us. Here we see in Acts 5.28, the apostles were teaching about Christ and the authorities. Here the Jewish authorities said, We strictly charged you not to teach in His name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us? But Peter and the apostles answered him, We must obey God rather than men. Again, being expressly forbidden from doing something that God requires us to do. That's pretty limiting because there's a lot of things outside of those bounds that I don't like that I'm asked to do, and there are things that I don't like that I feel that are required to do. A pastor friend of mine said it this way, For the Christian, the only motivation for civil disobedience is a deep biblical conviction that obedience to man would be disobedience to God. That's a good way of of summarizing things. Our Westminster Confession of Faith picks each of those passages, Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, and others, and draws out the principles when it says, it's the duty of people to pray for magistrates, to honor their persons, to pay them tribute or other dues, to obey their lawful commands, to be subject to their authority for conscience' sake. Infidelity or indifference in religion doth not make void the magistrate's just and legal authority. In other words, if they're not faithful, if they're immoral, and if they have a different religion or they are atheistic and have no religion, that doesn't give us license to to disobey them. They still have to be followed. It goes on to say, nor free the people from their due obedience to them, from which ecclesiastical persons are not exempted. So listen, I'm just as puzzled, perplexed, annoyed, frustrated, angry as you are with a lot of decisions that come out of our government, okay? That's, that's just completely honest. And our, that ranges from our local to our state to our federal governments. I watched on and off the proceedings this Thursday for our Johnson County Board of Commissioners, and I hear arguments and I hear a case being made one way and the other, and I hear a lot of impassioned speech and I see people listening, and I'm wondering what's going on in their heads. And, and at the end of the day, if, if I disagree with the decision that they came to, uh, that's going to be their decision. I know there are probably people on all sides of the debate that probably nobody came away happy. It's like, who, di- who is actually excited with the ruling that comes out? We, we never perfectly get our way. And, you know, that meeting is just, just kind of window into the, the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is that we're left longing for a final solution, a, a final government that will rule justly and rightly and perfectly. And this solution doesn't satisfy. Human government will never satisfy. The true solution can only be found in the kingdom of God. And there's only one king, and it's King Jesus. 
He's the ultimate rule and authority that, as Bob prayed, every knee will bow. Whether you're a Christian or you're not, whatever, at one point, everyone's going to bow before King Jesus. Our catechism beautifully says that, that Christ executes that office of a king. He does it perfectly by first subduing us to Himself. What does that say? By nature, we're rebellious. We want to do our own thing. We know we're always right. But King Jesus, in His perfect rulership over us, subdues us to Himself. He rules and defends us, and then He conquers all of His and our enemies. That gives us hope. That gives us confidence. Until He comes, we'll only see His kingdom in glimmers and glimpses. But when He does come in all of His glory, He'll make it all right. Let's solve the enigma of prosperity for the wicked. I wish we could solve it completely, but here we see in verse 10, then I saw the wicked buried. So we're at the funeral service for a wicked person. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. What? Wicked people going to the holy places? Sitting in the pews on Sunday at church? Yeah. Hypocrisy at its worst. This, is, this also is vanity. Verse 11, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. When is justice going to come? When's it going to come? When are they going to get their due? Verse 12, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know it will be right, well for those who fear God because they fear before Him. But it will not be well for the wicked, neither will he prolong the days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. All right, this gives us some hope, but this is what makes my blood boil, is when wicked people live, live, live such lives of hypocrisy. There's, I don't know, there's something that grates me about somebody who is wicked, but they pretend to be righteous, they pretend to be God-fearing and moral and worshipers of of God, and yet their lives are dripping with hypocrisy. But not only are they hypocrites, but they're getting away with it. They're, they're not checked on it. Verse 11, the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. I, I want them to get what they got coming right away, but they don't. So, before we get too fixated on the wicked people getting away with things and acting like hypocrites, uh, the preacher turns us right back on ourselves. He says, hold on a second. My word, my paraphrases. Verse 12b, yet I know that it will be well for those who fear God because they fear before Him. Before you get all wrapped up in the wicked getting away with their stuff, God calls us to examine our own hearts. Are you living in the fear and awe and respect of God Almighty? And are you living under His rule and according to His rules? You know, the, there's, there's a second part to this too. After He calls us to look at ourselves, He says, uh, He kind of turns us back to the wicked with a look, kind of a shadowy shape in their future judgment. Verse 13 says, but it will not be well for the wicked. There, there's a time coming where the wicked, it, it's not going to go well for them. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. The shadow we see under the sun 
starts to come into sharper focus as we get this over-the-sun shaft of light that just is beaming in. The New Testament tells us that it's appointed unto man once to die, and then there's a judgment. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, we're told, For all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or for evil. Our confession of faith again in chapter 33, section 2 says, The end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of His mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and of His justice in the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. The righteous will go on to everlasting light and the wicked will go to everlasting death, separation from God for eternity. And before we get too high and mighty about, well, my righteousness is going to get me into heaven, that's not what this is saying. The judgment of seed of Christ means you're examined based on either your good works or Christ's good works. Either your resolve that I bring nothing to the equation except my sin, which deserves God's wrath and curse, and then are resting in what Jesus Christ has done in His perfect obedience, yet He suffers the just wrath for my sin. You see, that's where this judgment is made. Are you in Christ, and are you robed in His righteousness? Or are you going to stand there on your own and say, I think my good outweighed my bad? God doesn't grade on a curve. That will not give you the words that we all long to see, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of my rest. That's only for those who are in Christ. But we can understand that the, the wicked will receive their due in their time. And so, let me just make a, this application. It's, it's easy for us to become resentful and embittered by wicked people getting away with stuff, especially when it's against us. When people hurt us, and offend us, and they do wrong by us, we immediately jump to vengeance. We immediately jump to, okay, how can I show them that they can't do that? I'm not going to be walked on, and I'm going to return evil for evil. Is that what we ought to do? No. But is that what we're, we seem to be charged to do in our sense of justice? Yeah. Romans 12 beautifully lays this out for us. I don't have time to unpack it, but you, you I've done this before. It's a matter of resolving that vengeance is God's. It belongs to Him. He will repay. We can take comfort in that. We should never return evil for evil, but we shouldn't be overcome by it either. We're commanded not to be overcome by evil. What should we do? Paul says, overcome evil with good. So every evil that you're thrown at you, you return it with a good. And in doing so, you're heaping coals of fire on that person doing evil to you, which I interpret as the conviction that comes when somebody sees, I've been throwing this out at this person, but they're just being good and gracious back to me. That, by God's grace, through the working of His Spirit, can bring conviction for when somebody's doing you wrong. But you're never allowed to throw some evil back at them. When the wicked don't get what, they're, what they deserve and they end up prospering, we're so prone to bitterness. We're so pr pr prone to resentment. By God's grace, we can let that go and we can say, God, that's yours, not my arena, but you have given me weapons to fight and you expect me to win. Good 
must overcome evil. All right, let's solve the problem of this enigma of suffering for the righteous. This is a tough one because I think it's so... All right, the prosperity of the wicked, that, that gets me because, well, their hypocrisy, and, and, and I get my blood boiling over that, but when the righteous suffer, it's more like a, a punch in the gut. It just takes the wind out of your sails. It, it, just, it just knocks the wind out of you, and you say, why, God? Really? How is this happening? Look at verse 14. He says, There is vanity that takes place on the earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. Basically saying, yeah, there are righteous people that, that, that are living in obedience to God and the, what they get in return is the things that happen to wicked people. It's like that saying, no good deed goes unpunished. That's tough. When that happens in our lives or in the lives of people we love, they're living a life where they're just trying to honor God, but then it doesn't work out. Things don't go well. He goes on to say that there are wicked people. It happens according to the deeds of the righteous, and that's also vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Remember, under the sun is this imperfect world of just the way things go, and yet God gives us times of joy. He gives us seasons where we can enjoy food and drink and fellowship with one another. Look to that instead of being consumed with what doesn't go right in our lives. When, when righteous people get treated the way of the wicked and their suffering hits the righteous, it, it just can stun and paralyze us. We can say, that's not fair, that's crazy. God, what are you doing in this situation? But before we go too, too far down that rot, rabbit hole under the sun, we should, examining, we should start examining the suffering of the righteous from this over-the-sun perspective. We're sometimes given reasons for why they're suffering. Now, here's a caveat. The Scriptures do speak of some reasons that suffering comes into our lives, but we're not given perfect knowledge as to what this situation means or what that's… I can't look into your life and say, oh, you're suffering because of this. There's some pointers and indications as to why the suffering might be there, and I want to give you three examples. The first example is sometimes we know that God uses suffering as a part of sin's consequences. Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from his flesh corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will also reap eternal life. That reaping and sowing principle is sometimes the reason behind why somebody is suffering. But we can't know that for sure. We should examine our hearts and our situation. Lord, test me, seek me, uh, try me, see if there's any impure way in me. Secondly, God can use suffering as His discipline, and He only disciplines sons that He loves. Hebrews 12, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? But He disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. 
For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Maybe your suffering, suffering is a training session that God has for you. None of it's pleasant when you're in it, but it could have that purpose in your life to train you. It might be for sin. It might be for discipline. I can't tell for certain in your life. I can, though, be honest before God and say, help me to know, God, is there a sin? Or what are you training me in that I need to grow in and be disciplined over? Thirdly, suffering is for God's refinement. In 1 Peter 1, 6-9, we see, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, and per- though it perishes, through, though it is, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is what God works in us, and it takes time, and He's burning off the dross in our life that needs to be burnt away. I came across uh, one of our members of the church we work with in Juarez. She uh, put this statement up on social media today. It was in Spanish, so I used Google Translate to get it over, so it might not be quite perfect, but here's, here's how it read. Once a man asked God for a flower and a butterfly. But God gave him a cactus and a caterpillar. The man did not understand, but still he kept them. Sometimes God does not give us what we ask for immediately, but if we know how to appreciate what he gives us, we will have what we ask for in due time. Prickly cactus. What am I going to do with this, God? This grubby caterpillar. How good is that? Thanks a lot. But when God cause us to wait on Him, and over time, we start to see this blossom come out of this cactus that's, that's so beautiful, and this, butter, this caterpillar that transforms into this beautiful butterfly, we start to get a glimpse of what God intended in that suffering to produce. John Newton, who Pastor no- Tony talked last week about um, William Cooper, who was just plagued by his desperation over his uh, circumstances and just had a hard life and he penned some of the most you know soulful words on suffering that the church has ever seen was pastored and counseled by John Newton and John Newton himself is living as a as, as a slave trader on a slave trip uh, on a slave ship and was converted to Christ and came to see his sinfulness and, and God's grace to him He wrote in a hymn that's maybe lesser known than Amazing Grace that he's well known for. He says, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Let me pause there. That's the ask. Let's see what God gives. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour, at once, he'd answer my request. And by his love and constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. 
Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. He crossed all the fair designs I schemed. He humbled my heart and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest find thy all in me. Now, until we have found our all in him, he's going to keep answering that prayer if we pray it. And it's going to be hard, but it's going to yield a beautiful and wonderful thing in our lives. I see suffering. I see sickness. I see people grieving over death. I see deep disappointment with parents, deep disappointment with children. I mean, it's just the constant theme that I hear week after week in counseling and in pastoring this flock and and seeing other churches and, and other believers who are wrestling with the same enigmas of life. The enigma of human government, boy, that's just been heightened recently for us. The prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous, they're not ultimately solved under the sun. I'm a problem solver. I love to diagnose, diagnose and fix problems. And when I can't, I get really frustrated. We get pieces of the solution in the over-the-sun perspectives, and the Lord's gracious to give us those. But the tough reality is He doesn't give us all the solutions we long for in this life. So I cling to Deuteronomy 29, 29, where God says in His Word that the secret things belong to God, but the things that He has revealed belong to us and to our children, that we may live by those. So those secret things, as much as I want to figure out those puzzles and those enigmas, i got to entrust to God. i got to say, cast those on Him and roll those burdens on Him because those aren't mine. Those solutions aren't mine. God will make all things right. He will make all things new. The preacher in Ecclesiastes 8, he understands it won't be that way. Look at verse 16 and 17 as we close this up. He says, When I applied my heart to know wisdom, to seek to know the business that's on the earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. If that's not enough, he has to say it a second time. How much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. And in case we haven't gotten the reality here, even though a wise man claims to know it, he cannot figure it out. There's some puzzles that won't be solved. But God in His grace has given us some guardrails, has given us some over-the-sun perspective so that we can navigate life in this enigmatic world with grace and with strength. Let's pray. Lord, you know our hearts long to know and to have answers and have the peace of understanding, but Lord, your promises are greater. You promise the peace that surpasses understanding. We won't solve all the issues and the problems and complexities in our life, but thank you, God, in your grace for giving us all we need for life and for godliness. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.